I'm Kelly Coffey, CEO of City National Bank. Our Conversations podcast features in-depth interviews with innovative leaders from business, entertainment, and nonprofits. Now is the time to rethink, reinvent, and renew yourself and your business. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Conversations. I'm Linda Duncombe, Executive Vice President and Chief Marketing, Data, and Digital Officer at City National Bank. I'm so glad to welcome our special guest, Stacey Smith, to the podcast today. Stacey is the foremost disruptor of inequality in the entertainment industry and the founder and director of the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. Her groundbreaking research examines inclusion of gender, race, ethnicity, the LGBTQ community, people with disabilities, and mental health in storytelling, and behind the camera, across film, television, and digital platforms. Stacey has authored more than 100 book chapters, articles, and reports, along with 40 studies on various aspects of entertainment, including annual studies examining inclusion in top-grossing films and popular music. Her TED Talk has been viewed by more than 1.2 million people, and she has spoken at the United Nations, the White House, the Sundance Film Festival, and the Toronto Film Festival. She has received numerous awards and honours for her research, including the Impact Award from the 2020 Critics' Choice Awards and the 2020 Gracie Award for Individual Achievement from the Alliance for Women in Media. Wow, Stacey, that is amazing. Stacey, thank you for joining us today. Before we dive into the groundbreaking work you've been doing at USC, I want to go back to your early career. When did you become interested in studying inequality? Has it always been a passion of yours? I started this work uh, in a really interesting way. I got a phone call from an organization asking me if I would be interested in doing a project on gender roles in children's entertainment. This was back in maybe 2003, so just about or around 20 years ago. They were working with actor Gina Davis at the time, and I had been doing a lot of work that included identity, but really focused on other things like the portrayal of media violence, right, or the sexualization of characters in video games. And so my expertise was easily able to be transferred over to um, looking at factors of identity. And so when I got the call about this project, I was really interested because I had been an intern at Gina's production company when I was an undergrad. And so I'm like, oh, this is really funny coming a full circle moment, right? I could hear all the bells going off and thought I should really do this and said yes to this project. And so it was in a meeting with the dean of the Annenberg School at the time, Jeff Cowan, who said, what about movies? And so our first study was on um, G-rated films. I'm so grateful that he suggested that. And, and, you know, I had always been doing work on gender and race, ethnicity as it relates to violence. So, so while they were interested in something very small and focused, our team brought in a much kind of, I think, larger and, and more holistic look at um, these portrayals. And when we got done, I made a list of all the studies I wanted to do. And we finished that list in 2019. And it was really because of our students. Our students was, they were how we got into this. This was their uh, passion. Um, Inclusion is part of the values of their generation. And so their enthusiasm and, and excitement really led us to continue working on this, create our own initiative and become the leading global think tank studying inequality in entertainment. 
I mean, that is phenomenal. Congratulations. All right. So over the years, you've partnered with a number of organizations and entertainment companies, including Spotify, BBC and Snapchat. Most recently, you released the second in a series of biannual reports with Netflix on inclusion in its scripted film and series content. In the report, you highlight a significant increase in the percentage of people of colour in leading roles in films and series, with more than 47% in 2020 and 21, having a lead or a co-lead from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group. Talk a little bit about that. I think that's a really important like stat and that we talk about that and get visibility around it. So our project with Netflix, it's really fascinating in a couple of respects. They came to us several years ago and we put out our first report two years ago, um, which was on 2018 and 2019. And then this report is the second in an iteration um, of reports. They've committed to do this work through 2025, 2026 um, to really let the world know how they're doing transparently. I mean, it's the perfect recipe for if an organization wants to have internal metrics, hires an independent group to come in to do that evaluation and to Netflix's credit, they let us do what we typically do. Um, they were a supportive partner. Uh, they received the information, informed internally all the teams about uh, that information, and then put it out publicly for consumers and the press to understand how they're doing. Now, most of the time when we do these studies, I have really bad news for people because the way the mind works is really interesting, right? You see a couple of examples. And if you bring those to mind quickly, this thing called the availability heuristic kicks in. If you can think of a few instances fast, you're going to overestimate a class of events. So if I can think of a few female directors or a few underrepresented directors, I'm going to think, oh, they're working all the time or a couple of shows, right? That feature women in the lead or people of color in the lead. Then you're going to overestimate how inclusion um, is actually doing. And so to, to get the metrics, it's really important. And so what was fascinating is the first time we released a report, Netflix, I think a few folks on the internal teams were a little surprised because they had already been working on content after that, right? Because research is often behind. So when we put out the results this time, it really aligned with the mindset we heard about two years ago. Historically, Netflix has done something no other company that we have evaluated has achieved, and it's a very big deal. They have achieved gender equality in leading roles, main cast, and series regulars for gender and people of color. So meaning that they are at proportional representation or higher in the most important roles across all of their films and their storytelling platform for scripted content or episodic content. So fictionalized storytelling like television. This is truly remarkable. And, yeah. you know, the press loves to cover negative things, but this is one of the most positive indicators that as we move to a streaming platform, this streamer is leading the charge. And I think it's terrific one that you see it from the top flowing down like role modeling and Lots of work has to be done, but it has to start somewhere. So just to see progression, see those momentums at that kind of level moving in the right direction, I think is fantastic. So thank you for sharing that um, with us. You've been a, a, a proponent of using storytelling as a means for promoting gender equality in the media. Can you discuss the power of storytelling and shaping perceptions about gender equality and influencing social change? And how can Hollywood um, better ha harness and promote positive inclusion and representation of all people. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think I think your question is, you know, predicated on this assumption that people are active viewers. They engage with content in multiple ways and they can really either, you know, be deeply involved with the characters that they see on screen or be more at a distance and just kind of, a, you know, a more passive uh, consumer of content. And so when we think about that, it becomes important to have the drip of just all the stories looking like the world we live in. So that day in and day out, as people watch, you know, different shows, independent of platform, they're seeing the world as we see it. And then there are shows that, you know, we might call drench, where they have a really pronounced impact on um, how people might see themselves for the first time. I mean, we're in a really interesting year where, you know, Michelle Yeoh uh, is in the press for weeks and weeks and weeks, right, with all of her accolades around everything, everywhere, all at once. Jennifer Coolidge accolades, you know, around the white lotus. Yeah. So we're seeing, you know, representation of older women in films like 80 for Brady in the examples I just mentioned. These have a pronounced impact, just like when young people are consuming media and see themselves represented for the first time. And to just give you an example of how powerful the media can be, I'm going to jump from the gender space to the LGBTQ plus space. You know, I don't think anybody would disagree that um, Will and Grace was one of the primary vehicles to usher in marriage equality in the United States of America. I, I don't think anybody would disagree because in people's living rooms, they were exposed to a sitcom, laughing, having an amazing time and developing relationships, right? With Will and Jack. Yeah. And then you read the research and the research is really clear. The impact that that show had on shifting people's attitudes and beliefs was so pronounced particularly with people that did not have anyone that was part of the LGBTQ plus in their community, whether it was at work or their friends, people who didn't have peers had positive experiences through that show and through that show shifted their attitudes, perceptions, and beliefs. There's documentation of this. That's just a great illustration of how we usher in equality through storytelling it, it, it's multifaceted. It can be unique to different stories. It could be just about the ecosystem. But media should not be underplayed as a factor that can contribute to this in, in really significant and in powerful, positive ways. Negative too, but positive as well. I find that, you know, it's so true. It's actually the um, ally and executive sponsor for the LGBTQ plus community. I'm at City National Bank and I feel such a sense of pride of you know, making people feel included and wanting to learn and be educated. And I do recall, like, I, I did have friends who were of the gay community when I was younger, but Will and Grace for me was a very powerful show. I mean, it was huge in Australia. And, you know, like, to see just, like, what I don't think people realise was they they do the same things that everybody else does. They get up, they have breakfast, they go to work, you know, like, I, just to demystify some of those things in such a safe environment, to your point, from their living rooms, I think was so, so powerful and opened the door, I think, for a, a lot more around that. Fascinating. Um, there was something I was really excited about that I, when I was um, doing my research on, on our chat today, and it was your concept of an inclusion writer. It gained widespread attention after Francis McDormand's 2018 Oscars acceptance speech. 
Could you elaborate on what an inclusion rider is and how it can be a tool for promoting gender equality and diversity? Yeah, I, yeah that's a great question. So that moment, you know, I've had a couple of those moments in my life where, you know, somebody say, says something that um, I'm either a part of or, you know, came out of the work that we're doing. But this one was really interesting. So we did this study back in 2010 and we talked to people about it was an interview-based study. Uh, and, and one of the jobs that we have here is at the Edinburgh Inclusion Initiative is just countering myths that people tell you. And one of the myths in Hollywood is that, and, and in academia, is that people in the industry aren't ever going to want to talk to you about this. And that's just such a myth. We did the first study where we sat down and talked to dozens of content creators about why there wasn't gender equality in film. We'd show them the data and then say, what accounts for this major imbalance, right? And and then they would have to hypothesize. And what people sometimes don't realize that you is sometimes you change as you get asked questions. And it's actually a really powerful vehicle to help people understand their own inequality. But we did this study and there was one one or two questions that we asked that if you ever had a gender balanced script come across your desk, would that be something, or if you wanted to green light a gender balanced film, would that be something that was objected to or you'd get pushback on? Now, as you know, I'm paraphrasing this question. It was like 87 to 90% said no, A, and B, most of the folks were like, nobody would even know. And the little, you know, secret in Hollywood that nobody ever really gets is that the typical feature film has somewhere between 35 and 40 characters. And most people are only paying attention to eight or 10. I mean, Avengers has like a lot of characters, but <laughs> the average film that goes from, you know, you know, rom-com, a drama, action, whatever the case might be. There's a lot of people at hotels and at workplaces and parents and all of these people are in a storyline. and. A lot of folks just have a few words like he went that way, right? I, I mean, it, it just, so, so I came up with this idea back in 2010 saying, oh, I'm sitting in this very chair at this very desk, different computer, thankfully, because <laughs> I kept thinking, how do we change this? If nobody notices, and then it, I then just deduced, if nobody notices, well, why can't we ask for it? And rather than asking it through, directors or producers or executives, who has the most power? It's white men in Hollywood. And so the inclusion writer was really conceived initially as a tool for people who, and kind of an interesting other story to this, but as a tool for people who really cared about equality and they would just put it in their contract like any other demand, like the size of their trailer, how many tickets they get to do press in the premiere and what's in their trailer when they are shooting the film. Like all of the things that are part of their demands, inclusion and storytelling would be there too. And because if this is how easy it is to change gender equality in Hollywood. All it takes is adding five female characters to the top 100 films, setting a new norm and repeating that process for four years and that we would then be at gender equality for the first time ever. We're only locking in at like 33% female speaking characters in, in the typical feature film. And so, so I then started taking this idea to a whole bunch of different attorneys and I took it to my one of my friends at the time, Julia Ormond, she's an actor and she said, I'm going to put you in touch with my uh, attorney. And so I'm having then lunch with her attorney saying, would this work? And so then I went on kind of a, a listening and explaining to her 
telling attorneys about this saying, would it work? Would it work? And so that went on for a couple of years. And then in 14, I wrote an op-ed and we started then getting more serious about it. I end up connecting with um, Fanchin Cox. She was working with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. We got the concept to them. We then brought on Kalpana Kodigal, uh, an attorney to write the language and really kind of this whole team effort then pushed uh, the inclusion writer into the hands of people as a holistic document to try to help people think about on-screen and behind the camera hiring um, as a tool. But the thing that's really exciting about it is it's metastasized now to other industries and people can do this anytime they're hired into a new position. Who comes along with that hiring decision? Or if you want to bring it into, you know, any sort of photo shoot that let's say an actor has to have a crew around them, they can make demands about that crew you can see it, you know, and it's been used now in music and fashion. And I haven't been involved with those iterations, but the goal is how do you help people have tools to change the environment, particularly when they have a degree of power that people will meet the demands when they ask. And that was really the genesis of it. And so it it was very exciting time. And it's exciting now when people continue to use it and use it in other domains. And raise awareness around it. Because I think when, Francis used it in her speech. Everybody's like, you know, what, what is this inclusion writer? And we all kind of went out looking for it to your point about this halo effect. It starts to get into all these other areas and industries of people going, well, like I have so much power. I didn't even realize how I could use my power for good and to make, and to help with the change and build the momentum. So, I mean, Stacey, congratulations. I think that's just a phenomenal um, example of what you've been able to do. Um, we always like to close conversations with a look ahead to the future What do you see as the most promising initiatives, policies or strategies that have been implemented in recent years to promote gender equality in Hollywood? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And so I think I have a bit of an unconventional answer, which is I think a lot of folks are racing around kind of following the latest trend or here's what we do or, you know, everybody hopped on the implicit bias bus, um, which implicit bias is real. It's a problem, but it's not Hollywood's large problem. Hollywood's large problem is explicit bias because they talk about it. And once you start talking about it, the hegemony is is clear and then people are legitimating their um, oppressive strategies. But because it's spoken, everybody thinks it's just fine. And so, you know, what we really try to recommend, and um, we played a really critical, if not the most critical role of writing the Amazon inclusion policy, is really working with experts who understand the six to eight levers that drive inequality, working with the Alice Eagleys of the world that nobody, you know, in more, you know, practical spaces, whether it's financial services sector, you know, Hollywood, government, these researchers that are doing, Patricia Devine is another one, doing this amazing work. And they understand not only the problem, but they have very specific ways in which they're thinking about how to solve inequality from a variety of different perspectives. Bringing those folks into the conversation, working with them as consultants, rather than some of the people that You know, it's interesting who gets chosen to work with companies. And here we have some of the top scholars in the world, whether they're at UCLA or Northwestern or, you know, Wisconsin or North Carolina, doing the work that really helps us understand the psychological profile of who excludes whom under what context. 
to get companies to start that switch and drawing on those experts, I think that's what we're focusing on in the next couple of years. How do we bring those folks as a part of our conversation to helping people really understand there's ways to do this that that shouldn't take years, but you have to work with the best of the best. And as I always say, if you have a heart condition, you want the best cardiologist, the best surgeon to be the one evaluating your condition. And I think we need the best of the best that have worked on this for decades because they have tools that folks don't know. And if people had access to those tools, why would they not want to try to use them? Like, why aren't people cluster hiring? Why aren't people fast tracking? A lot of folks have already the answers to some of these problems. And I think it'd be useful to get them in the conversation publicly and privately in ways they're not right now. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, like, let's not overcomplicate something. If, if you know what the diagnosis is, like, let's get the best and let's solve it. Like, it, it 100%. makes a lot of sense. What advice do you have for young people who are interested in pursuing careers in media, particularly those from underrepresented backgrounds? You know, this is another great question. And I would say I have two things. One is that at 20, I told my parents, hey, I want to change the world. And they thought it was absolutely hilarious. And I had no idea what that meant or how this was going to potentially play out. And they they found humor in the whole thing, right? Um, but what was really important is that I didn't listen to them because my path was going to be very unconventional. I was going to follow this research stream and I knew that I wanted to create change via Hollywood, right? These were the only things that I knew. And so my poor parents, you know, they're just like, could you get a job? And I'm like, no, I'm going to get another degree. And um, (laughs) that's not always received well right? Like, you know, you want to keep going. And and my parents were just very practical. They wanted me to have financial security, which is not uncommon, right? I mean, that's, that's an aspiration that most parents have for their kids. Yeah. So, so a couple of things, you really have to know your inner voice and you really have to know when it's the world talking to you versus something that you really need to pay attention to and honing your own internal barometer of what you should lean into and what you should run from, not a red flag, but a run flag. And that often the greatest obstacles in life present themselves as challenges right before you want to do something really big or significant in your life. And just being super clear on your vision, on your goals, your strategies, tactics to get you there That's one thing. And that often involves sometimes not listening to the people around you, but looking to other folks to be, to help you guide that kind of north that you're, you're heading uh, for. The second thing is that there's no greater time in Hollywood for people who traditionally haven't been part of the system because they've been excluded by the system. They have the access and opportunity, but in the past, that system has been so exclusionary. Now it is really an optimal time of deceit, uh, of upheaval, of um, people having to disconnect, reconnect, reformulate different strategies. And so where it's been an exclusionary space, I have more hope now than I think I have in the entire time that we've been doing this, that um, more spaces are being created. They should have been created a long time ago because people have the talent. It's the access and opportunity. They've been shut out. 
So my, my advice would be to not only listen, but to keep going and to do what you can to put yourself in spaces where people who might have executive producing credit on shows or on films, where those people are speaking and showing up, whether it's film independent, whether it's a Sundance Film Festival, whether it's a talk on a college campus. And I know those are all places of privilege. There are so many people now wanting to fund the work of voices who have been marginalized, the ways in which that they connect uh, with those voices, show up in those places, ask questions, go up and make a contact, try to get coffee. It's a lot of work, but because now I think it's, it's a bit of a different space. There's still a long way to go. There's a, there's an opening in the, the people now of this generation, they value inclusion and they have an amazing voice. Use that voice, use your platform, use your social media contacts and, and do what you can to make those connections and ask people like me who have a few connections, how can I get to know other people that can, and, and this week I've done it twice, right? There's so many of us that want to pay it forward for the things that we have been so fortunate to have. So I say be bold, be courageous, and listen to what it is that you truly want to do. Yeah, and I love the keep going. Like there's never been a better time than now to do it. I think that is terrific. You mentioned some some of the work. Do you have anything you're working on right now that you're excited about that you can maybe give us a little sneak insight into or it's all very top secret? So what I'm most excited about is that um, we have in a partnership with the Adobe Foundation. And Adobe came to us and said, what's your big idea? And I said, let's rank all the film companies and give them an inclusion score based on quantitative metrics. Because, right, everybody comes out with who's doing great on inclusion. It's based on, like, what the Hollywood Reporter says or what publicists pitch or whatever the case might be. I said, let's rate all the films between 2019 and 2022 that make over a million dollars, let's rate every single one on 20 metrics, 10 metrics on screen, 10 metrics behind the camera. So who's in leading roles and whether they achieve proportional representation across gender, race, ethnicity, LGBTQ, people with disabilities and age in terms of are they showing older characters in leading roles? And then the whole ecosystem, is it balanced? And then behind the camera and key, 10 key roles above and below the line. So writer, producer, uh, and director, but also things like camera, editor, production designer, costume designer, assistant director, casting director, et cetera. Put all the scores together and we've created, much like the time list, the time 100 list, we are un- unleashing the 100 most inclusive films on the inclusion list uh, by the Annabelle wow. Inclusion Initiative. Oh yeah, we've rated... And, and this is, we're just beginning because it's the beginning of us rating everyone based on inclusion. And I'm happy to report that the top producers represent a cadre of individuals from a variety of different backgrounds. The top distributor is Universal Pictures uh, that I wow. far and away have the highest inclusion score um, as a company run by Donna Langley. Um yeah really understands, I think, the times we're living in and has ushered in a company and a viewpoint that has a sensibility 
towards inclusion. Secondly, we have a series of top producers and top directors. Some won't be surprises, but others will. Um, and, and, and the top 100 films of the last four years. And wow. what's really important about this top 100 is who's not only on the list, but who's not on the list. Because yeah. that means that their hiring decisions on, uh, on screen and behind the camera aren't inclusive and you can't just be inclusive on one indicator anymore. It's not just enough to hire uh, a single group to say that a movie is inclusive. This is really about intersectionality, but it's really to tell people who's doing a phenomenal job. And if we're not mentioning them, they're not doing so well. (laughs) So it's a great, I think, accountability, but we can also celebrate the achievements of people like Donna Langley and others that are just hitting it out of the park. I mean, you you are a champion. You have been trailblazing your whole career. You know, you listened, you know, I'm, I'm, things that I heard you say, you know, believe in yourself, listen to that inner voice. You told your, your parents that you were going to be the kid that changed the world and you have, and you continue to do that. So on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you so much for your time today. I'm personally a big supporter and I know our CEO Kelly Coffey is a huge supporter of yours as well. So thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a blast. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll subscribe to Conversations so you'll never miss an episode. We have lots of great guests this season who will inform and inspire you. 